Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Atlanta, Georgia, it's time for Business Writers Radio. Brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. Welcome to another exciting and informative edition of Business Writers Radio. Stone Peyton Lee Cantor here with you this afternoon. And in this segment, we have with us the founder of Talent Grow LLC, Miss Haleli Azulai. How are you, Haleli? I'm doing fabulously. Thank you. How are you? We're doing well. Uh, Talent Grow, can you share a little bit about what you're doing for folks? Yeah, with Talent Grow, um, been operating for almost 11 years now, trying to bring leadership to leaders. So helping them become the kind of leader people actually want to follow. Now, have you always done this kind of work? What What is your backstory, Haleli? I've been interested in how people com- can communicate more effectively for for as long as I can remember. And it's what I studied in school. But in the interim for the first several years of my career, I kind of took a detour from focusing on communication and on um, an interpersonal relationship and focused more on developing my craft, which is how to help adults learn in corporate settings. And so um, I worked in a financial services in the financial services sector and focused a lot more on products and services, on uh, practices related to the specifics of that organization's work and um, helping train people on their proprietary software. And I rose up to become the manager of the training department over several years. And at that point, I started recognizing and the organization had grown large enough that it started having these different layers of managers, supervisors, and directors. And some of the typical uh, issues that come up a lot when, when you have this diversification of the layers in the work in the workforce came up in that organization. And this is where I kind of reunited with my love for um, leadership development and helping managers be good managers and helping people communicate better with each other. And that's when I started refocusing on that aspect of my of my interest and marrying that with that craft that I had built of uh, organization development, training and development and helping people learn. In the training industry, you're pretty active with the ATD, which was formerly the ASTD. Can you share a little bit about how that relationship helped you get your book, Employee Development on a Shoestring, published through the ASTD Press? Yeah, it really did help me in every way possible to be involved with that organization. And I think that um, it's something that almost anyone can replicate in some way to bring them benefit while giving benefit. So this organization used to be ASTDs, now ATD, is my professional um, trade association, right? Or the, you know, the, the place where people in my profession in the world of workplace learning, training, and development hang out to learn more about how to do that better and also to connect with others. And so I became actively involved as a volunteer leader, and I took leadership roles in my local chapter. At the time, it was in Washington, D.C., including being on the board of directors, being the president of the chapter. And, uh, and then eventually became involved in um, some of the national level committees that the organization had to offer. And by becoming an active leading leader in the organization as a volunteer, I, of course, gave a ton of value by giving my time, by giving my energy, by giving my, my knowledge. But I built not only just skills, but connections and um, 
the opportunity to connect with people that I would have otherwise probably not been able to connect with. Or maybe if I would have been lucky enough to meet them, they might not have seen me in a peer kind of light or might not have felt like there was a a potential symbiotic or win-win relationship, whereas when they met me as a leader in that organization. And I can certainly talk more about that, but I I don't know if this is where you were hoping I would go. This is what led (laughs) Uh, in the long in the long run, it helped to lead to many opportunities, including publishing my book. So in that first book, in that employee development on a shoestring, what are some of the key principles that, that you shared in that work? Because of my work in the profession of training, development, workplace learning, I have come across the idea from some of the learners and some of the managers that there is sort of a lack mentality or scarcity mentality when it comes to helping people grow. If you read a lot of the uh, statistics that are out there about what's causing low engagement in employees, you know, there's a a real problem with a lot of people being disengaged uh, in the workplace. Or when you ask people, why are they leaving organizations? A lot of people say it's because they're not growing or they're not developing or they don't have an opportunity. And so when you think about, you know, managers or the people who develop employees thinking, I don't really have a way to... to grow them. I don't know how to help them grow. And the people are saying, I'm not going to stay here if you're not going to help me grow. I knew that there is, you know, they're not thinking outside the box, but there's so much more than this binary thinking about, well, you know, to grow, to learn, you have to go to a training class. And I don't have a training class on this topic, or there isn't a training class, a class being scheduled until, you know, three quarters from now, or I don't have a budget to send you to training on this. You know, when you think about training equal development, you're missing out on so much more because most people learn outside of the training class in the first place. And there's tons of things you could do very creatively that don't cost money, that don't require a special program that could help people grow skills and knowledge that they need, that they want, and just in time. And I could teach you how to do that. And so this is, this is what I wrote my book about. And this, these are the people who I wrote it for. I would imagine that in today's job climate, that a lot of good people are leaving organizations because their relationships aren't that great with their boss. Is that accurate? Yeah. I mean, we all have heard that. It, it sounds like a cliche, you know, that people don't, people don't leave jobs, they leave bosses. But in fact, it's pretty supported by the statistics that are out there. <laughs> you know, most people leave when they feel frustrated with their manager or their boss. And for many reasons, maybe there's a lack of chemistry. Maybe they're not getting the development that they're looking for and they've asked and they're not getting it. Maybe that person doesn't communicate well. Maybe that person doesn't give them feedback enough. Maybe that person doesn't help them grow or doesn't listen to them and match their job to their strengths. So um, that's a big problem. And a lot of organizations are really concerned because, you know, it it has become, if you will, like it's kind of like a a buyer's market in the real estate industry. Here it is, you know, the there is a lack of skilled employees for the jobs that people need to fill. And so it gives power to the employees that are looking to get work in the sense that they they can choose. And it gives power to people to leave jobs and to go choose something different. So if you're in in an organization looking to keep good people, one of the best ways to do that is to make sure that your bosses aren't causing them to leave. You know, that you help their leaders, their managers, be good managers and do the right thing to help them stay. A lot of people that are in a management position are there because they got promoted because they were actually really good at the technical side of the job, not because they were really good at being a manager. In fact, 
It might have zero to do with their ability to be a manager. And that's just sort of like a crapshoot. So a lot of organizations are putting people into management positions without any kind of relationship to their ability, to their current skill level. But then worse, they don't give them what they need to close that gap. So they don't actually how to be a good manager. And then the employees bear the brunt of receiving that maybe not so perfect management style from that poor manager who doesn't know any better. It's not often it's not intentional. It's just that that's the best that they can do. Stop that. (laughs) (laughs) Now, your other book is entitled Strength to Strength, How Working from Your Strengths Can Help You Lead a More Fulfilling Life. I find that title very attractive. Tell us a little bit about that one and what compelled you to write that book. Thank you. I'm glad you did like it because that's the, that's one title I did come up with. The other one, my publisher. <laughs> but this book helps in the same way that I think that a lot of people don't recognize. And maybe there's, you know, there's, there used to be a mentality in the workplace where, you know, you get a job and you do the best work that you can and you don't look for the job to match you. You match yourself to the job. And also there is an old world mentality of giving feedback where you focus on here's all the things you're doing wrong, now fix it. But there's more and more data that comes out that says that people that are really high performing, people that really enjoy their job, people that give really high quality and high value in their work are usually the people that are doing work that lines up well with their strengths. And so if if we can help people, first of all, identify what their strengths are and also match the work that we ask them to do as much as possible to their strengths, then we're actually creating the most perfect environment for people to do excellent work. And so we don't have time to waste on constantly fixing bad work. And we're spending so much time trying to help people become someone that they're not or, or, or spending time like letting that person go and finding somebody else. What about if we just took the people that we have and tried to, instead of shoving them into the wrong job, trying to right-size the job to them? And so I go into like, how do you discover what your strengths are? And then how do you try to make sure that you're working to your strengths? And how do you maybe shift the way you're working to match your own strengths better, to match the job that you have to your strengths better? Or maybe you need to be in a different kind of role. Can you share maybe a tip on how to identify your strengths? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, there's a couple of different assessments that are out there that I think do a pretty good job. So there might be, um, that might be the, the shortest way to get some kind of a sense. But, you know, a really quick way to do it is um, a couple of things you need to think about. First of all, when you do something and you lose a sense of time, when you, you know, you're doing it, it, it's not because it's easy for you to do necessarily, but it does come, you're very interested in it. And when you're doing it, you are so in it that you don't even notice, like you don't notice you're hungry. You don't notice time passing. Uh, this is something that um, researcher, Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, oh, his name is hard to say, Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, um, who's one of the fathers of the field of positive psychology, calls this sense a sense of flow. And if you get the sense of flow when you're doing something, that's probably a good sign that you're working from your strength. So if you can reflect on times in your life when you did something and you lost a sense of time, that's a good clue. Another clue is 
what is something that other people come to you to ask you for uh, help on? You know, that, that maybe it seems really obvious to you, like this is the easiest thing in the world. Why would anybody struggle with it? But it seems that there's these other people that struggle with that and, and you seem to be the go-to person for them. That's another clue that that might be something that is a strength for you that is not necessarily a strength for other people because we all have strengths and they're all different for different people. If I ever have another boss, I want it to be you. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. I like it. So now, as I understand it, you're a professional speaker as well. You are on the conference circuit. Which of these topics do you speak to? Do you speak to both of the, the topics covered in these two books and others? What do you share when you're on the stage? Yeah, that's a great question. So on a side note, as a professional speaker, one of the things that they teach you in professional speaker school, there, there is no such thing, I'm kidding, <laughs> but um, one of the things you learn from, from the other people that teach you about how they've done this successfully, I, I hang out with another organization called uh, National Speakers Association, NSA, um, that is the, the hub for professional speakers. And they always say you should take a really narrow niche. You, you should be known for like one thing and one thing only. I'm still working on that because I'm, I'm um, uh, the kind of person who's multi-interested and multi-talented and I, I crave variety. So um, I, I do, so it, it would be the last of the part of the question you asked, which is I speak on all of that. It's often based on the connection between the organization that's hosting the event and the types of people that they're bringing and the topics that they're focusing on or the themes that they have for their event. But usually they come to me because one of those angles matches well with what they're looking to have a speaker speak on. And so it's almost always related to one of the topics of my two books or um, some of the topics of the workshops that I provide in corporate settings. And also, even recently, I spoke at an event based on, on a blog post that I did. You know, So I had a blog post. In fact, this particular blog post, uh, um, the organizer read it. It was about why you should ditch your performance reviews, You know, the very controversial kind of topic. And while I'm not necessarily the expert on performance reviews, I definitely have a perspective and a point of view that's informed by all the work that I do and all of the things we've just spoken about that tells me that the way that organizations have been doing traditional performance reviews is just all wrong. And there's lots of trends in the marketplace where the pendulum is swinging in the other direction. So it was a very topical perspective. It matched their organization's needs, and it definitely matched things that I think about, speak about, talk about very regularly and write about, of course. So in that case, that's what, you know, I built a, a talk for them based on that, on that blog post. Now, can we talk a little bit about having your book published through the ASDD Press? Did that help you since it was a more traditional publishing strategy in terms of promotion and um, getting the book out? I missed the first part of your question. Did what help me more than traditional publishing? Did having your book, your book being published through ASTD Press help you in promoting the book? Yes, it did. Um, so the benefits of going, so it is a publisher. It's not a self-published book. So in that sense, it gave me all of the benefits of having an external uh, publishing house put the book together. So um, they provided editorial uh, services to me. They provided, you know, design for the cover, for the layout and all of that. So I didn't have to worry about having to create all of that from scratch or to figure it out myself. You know, this is a very experienced 
body that does this all the time and they know how to do it well and they know what works well. They have a marketing operation that is already working really well that has a very targeted um, audience that they send information to, all of whom have in common that they're interested in employee development, they're interested in the world of training and development. So for this particular book, it made a lot of sense for me to publish it through them because um, while I actually wrote the book for managers and supervisors who might be in all kinds of fields and maybe not even thinking about employee development. Often when those people are experiencing difficulties related to how to develop employees, they go to the people in their organization that know something about that. And those people were the target market for the for all of the marketing and advertising messages that come from you know ASTD, ATD. So I was able to reach the, if you will, the people that serve the target audience and help them with a resource that they could convey to those people that are struggling to provide additional support to them because they can't be with all managers all the time, but they can certainly give them a copy of my book and and say, hey, this, this can help you, you know, and so it allows them to extend their own value to their organization. And it certainly helps me have some people on the ground that can extend my message further. Now, are you finding that being the author of two books is helping you get more speaking engagements or command higher fees or providing any other kind of secondary, this is probably not even fair to call them secondary, but additional benefits as a practitioner? Without a doubt. In fact, one of the reasons I even wanted to become an author was in a strategic um, branding kind of move. You know, it's, I, I started seeing and recognizing and hearing about the fact that people who are published authors are seen much more favorably in the marketplace uh, as compared to people who are not. And it allows them to have a greater range of exposure. It increases the perceived value in, in the marketplace when, you know, all things being equal, when you're comparing two people and all things being equal about maybe their history, their background, their skill set, this one is a published author, this one is not, it adds value, you know, so it helps me from a competitive perspective. It also helps me reach more people. So for example, um, as a published author, uh, you know, kind of related to the question you asked me earlier about what ATD did for me, you know, the, um, my ability to have my book, my face, my name, my writing. I was blogging for them. You know, they were, they were, they were publishing more of my work. They were doing podcasts with me. They uh, were promoting me at their, at their conference as a speaker and so on. All of these things helped me get a much broader uh, potential audience and reach many more people than I would have been able to through my own devices, just through the audience that I was able to build directly. So it expanded my my reach so much more broadly, but it also helps me be discovered by other people. So for example, people are searching in Amazon, people are searching in Google, people are, are um, receiving a, maybe like a recommendation from other people who have read my book. So it helps me gain credibility. It helps me gain uh, visibility and increase the number of people that might find me that would have never found me otherwise when I have a book out. So I absolutely think that it makes a difference and I've I've experienced it directly. Can you share a little bit about the nuts and bolts about the writing process? Did you have a system for actually writing your book? Yes. 
So these two books were done in a very different way. Um, so the first book, Employee Development on a Shoestring, um, was my first book. And I found it completely overwhelming and daunting to even think about how to write a book <laughs> when I've never written a book. But um, one of the things that I leveraged, I think, smartly was a mentor, or m- probably many mentors, but one key uh, mentor, someone that I already had a relationship with who had already written a lot of books. I was able to get a lot of very concrete and um, useful advice from her to help me organize. One of the things that uh, helped me get this book written was first thinking about the structure and thinking about the outline. And this was actually part of my process for pitching the book to the publisher in the first place. I was um, asked to think about what would my table of contents be, like what would the chapters be about? But this was super helpful because it helped me kind of think about my topic in general and say, okay, well, how would I, how would I divide it up into these subcategories? And what would be a logical structure for this particular book? So maybe some books have chapters that build one on top of the other, you know, that have to happen in a particularly um, uh, logical kind of flow, whereas my chapters were more standalone chapters because of the way that I wrote this book. The first chapter is about development in general, but then after that, the next 11 chapters were about specific development methods, unique standalone development methods. And so I knew that I was writing my book in a way that allowed people to flip through it and not have to read every chapter in order to get benefit. They could kind of look through the table of contents and say, oh, which one, which one attracts me or which one sounds like something that I could try? And they could just sort of flip to any, any of the methods and just read that chapter. And then I, uh, I was guided by the publisher to think about, well, what would be the repeating uh, framework within the chapters, right? Because the chapters were all sort of these standalone methods. It made sense that they should have the same flow, right? Like wh- what do you describe first? Well, in my chapter is it's first defining the method, you know, what is it and who is it probably a good fit for and how do you do it? And what are some of the objective objections you might come up with? And here are some tips and here are some, uh, worksheets and checklists and that kind of stuff. So it was a recurring structure template that I was using for each chapter, which much uh, provided much further help in terms of writing the book because it's like it becomes more like fill in the blank. And then I knew what research I needed to do. So I needed to find examples and case studies and stories. And so I was able to do that around the topics, around the certain components of each of the chapters. And then once I had all of the information, I was able to write it. And for me, having this kind of a book and this kind of a structure also gave me the freedom to work on the chapters as I felt like an energy around it, or I found a really cool cool piece of research. So I didn't have to write first, you know, chapter two and then chapter three, I was able to jump around as I was writing it because I could just keep adding the different things to the different chapters almost simultaneously. So that particular book, it was really just a matter of filling in the blanks and filling in the templates and and adding to it. And then of course, after all of that was done, then you can read it for flow and editorialize and all of that. Now you are what I wrote in a very different way. I could talk about that as well. You are what my basketball coach father would call a triple threat. You're not only a speaker and an author, but you also have a podcast. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you approach that, the kind of people that you interview and, and your mission and purpose with your podcast? Yeah. Oh, I love, I love podcasting. If I could just do podcasting for a living, I think that that's what I would do. So uh, who knows, maybe one day I will become truly a threat for you, but right now it's okay. (laughs) Let's see. So a podcast allows me to have my voice in someone's ear for 
30 minutes. I already was a blogger before I started podcasting. So I was able to have my voice out and I have a following of people who enjoy learning from me. But, you know, we read blogs very differently than we listen to podcasts. You know, when, when you're looking at a blog post, you can just sort of skim it really quickly. Or maybe you just read like part of it and then you drop drop off. Or maybe you just read the title, you know, the chunks or whatever. But when you listen to a podcast, after the first few minutes where you decide if it's worth your time or not, usually people just listen to it start to finish. And they listen to it usually in one fell swoop and in a dedicated kind of way. And this allows me to reach people in a very different, much more intimate way than through blogging. So I didn't stop blogging, but I added podcasting because I think it adds another way for me to add value differently. And also some people learn better by listening than by reading. So it allows me to meet more people where they are. And or, for example, let's say somebody enjoys learning while they're driving their car. Well, I hope they're not reading my blogs while they're driving their car. But (laughs) They don't have to wait to learn from me because now they can learn from me even while they drive their car or even while they're washing dishes. So it lets me reach people in multiple ways. It lets me serve different kinds of learners and it helps me reach people more intimately, which allows me to build more of a relationship with them. It allows me to create more of a bond with my audience as a person who is trying to also market. I think that... If there's nothing you you can't really get that in any other way to have people that are connected to you intimately where it's just you and them one on one you're in their ear and they're learning from you so for me it made a lot of sense and i i find it very enjoyable my my podcast is mostly interviews uh sometimes i do episodes where i kind of riff on something and share something kind of more like part of my, you know, part of one of my workshops or part of my, one of my talks and just sort of like a spoken blog, if you will. But most of the time I'm interviewing people. Um, so I'm bringing more knowledge and more expertise to the people that enjoy learning from me. And now they're learning with me from these people. Before we wrap, can you share the most important piece of advice you have for a new author? Can you repeat that? I had a hard time hearing it. Can you share the most important piece of advice you have for a new author? For a new author? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. One, (laughs) (laughs) if I could only choose one, um, because of the people that I've met who are wannabe authors, um, I can tell you that the one thing they all need to hear probably the most is just start. Just start. Um, So many people are just thinking about it and spinning about it and fretting about it. And I did for a long time. I would say start. Well, I think that is marvelous, Council. Uh, Haleli, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. We've got to have you back. Uh, And you know, we mean that when we say it, because we had an opportunity to visit with you briefly the very first time we met you at at the Business Writers Conference. One of the things that I want to dive into when we do have you back, either on the phone or in the studio sometime, is I know you've got some ideas around taking the ick out of networking. And I'm interested in diving into that. But this has been a very informative and invigorating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. And before we leave, let's make sure that our listeners know how to reach you, get their hands on these books or uh, reach you so that they can have a meaningful conversation around some of these topics. Well, I really appreciate the invitation to return. And you're right. I mean, you don't get asked back unless you did something right. So thank you very much for, for the vote of confidence and for giving me uh, the opportunity to, to have time on your show. And um, 
And I, I would love to come back and talk about uh, taking the ick factor out of networking. It's something that I actually am focusing on a lot. And I think it's the topic of my next book. So, um, well, my, the best one place to see everything that I do is on my website. And that's uh, talentgrow.com. I have uh, my blog is on there. My podcast is on there. Links to my books are on there. Um, ways to uh, see what I'm what I'm up to. All of that is on there. But also, um, I have a newsletter that I put out twice a month that's super short, always has an actionable tip. And also, it always has links to my latest blog and my latest podcast and things that I'm up to. So um, there is a sign-up uh, spot on my website. And if people want to keep in touch with me, that would make me super happy. So uh, however they want to connect with me, I'm on social media. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Facebook. So um, yeah, connect with me. Let's keep the conversation going. (laughs) You got it. Well, thank you again. And until you and I get together again, I'm going to focus on my strengths. (laughs) I love it. All right. Until next time, this is Stone Payton for Lee Cantor, our fearless producer, Ryan Redhawk McPherson, and everyone here at the Business Radio X family saying we'll see you next time on Business Writers Radio. Business Writers Radio is brought to you by Business Writers Exchange. To learn more about developing a successful book and building your business around it, visit business-writers-exchange.com. 